Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled The Value and Necessity of Suffering. The talk was given by Red Hawk on September 23, 2023, via Zoom. Red Hawk is an acclaimed poet and the author of 12 books, including Self-Observation, Self-Remembering, The Way of the Wise Woman, and Return to the Mother. In this talk, Red Hawk discusses the two types of attention that are possible for human beings, using terms from the Gurdjieff work. He describes the distinction between mechanical suffering and conscious suffering, and how conscious suffering, engaged with discrimination, produces heat, which allows the heart to catch fire as mercy, as compassion. There is reference to a toast that was made at certain times in the spiritual school that he is part of. May the heat of suffering become the fire of love. During the live talk that Red Hawk gave by phone, he asked that photographs of his teacher, Lee Laswick, and of Lee's teacher, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, be screen-shared. If you would like to participate in the exercise to ground attention that Red Hawk facilitates near the beginning of the talk, feel free to stand and do so. And if there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Red Hawk. I begin with sincere gratitude that you have made the effort to come here tonight so that we may work together and struggle to understand more, especially to grasp and grapple with this profound human experience of suffering. No one escapes it, even that good Master Jesus. So, thank you. And I come here tonight because there is a possibility of help here. And I need every bit of help that I can find in order to continue to grow. So, when I work, I always begin at zero. And in order to work together and to elicit help available from high sources, I begin with the law of invocation. This law was taught by the good master Jesus as when two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be also. And the invocation of the name of any God-realized being invokes the divine who must, obligated by law, descend into this space and create what we call a work chamber. It is a sanctified chamber, a special circumstance in which help of a very high order is available to us, provided we can receive. 
So the two God-realized beings that whose names I invoke, it could be Jesus or Buddha or Lao Tzu, Krishna, or any number of God-realized beings. But in my tradition, in the school that I'm a part of, I invoke the name of Lee Lazowick, who is my master, Mr. Lee, and his master, the godchild of Tiruvannamalai, the holy beggar, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. So we begin by invocation then. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Jaya Guru Raya. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Jaya Guru Raya. Jay Shri Kepali Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Guru Maharaj Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. Jay Shri Kepali Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Guru Maharaj Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. By using the law of invocation, what we have created for ourselves here now is a sacred space, which the work calls a chamber. It is an empowered, enlightened, sacred, invocational space. And by the law of invocation, the divine is obligated by law to descend and in so doing, to feed upon the emanations which are created by our efforts together, and likewise to feed us with its emanations. This is called the law of reciprocal maintenance. In such a chamber, there are certain protocols. One of them is that everyone in the chamber is obligated to speak, but because of the size of the assemblage, we will simply say that if you are moved to speak, please do. And do so despite the mind's resistance. I'm afraid to speak in front of so many people. I'm afraid I'll look stupid or sound stupid. I don't want to interfere. I'm afraid I have nothing important to say, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At any point in this evening that we're spending together and working together, if you have a question at any point, I hope you'll feel free to immediately ask it. Not only are you not interrupting the flow, you are contributing to the chamber in an important way. A good question is food, upon which the divine may feed, upon which we may all feed, and which empowers the chamber. It allows the chamber to expand, and if our efforts are sincere enough, the chamber can rise to a different level, and the help is magnified. The second protocol of the chamber, and this is one that applies to everyone who is present, is that we must all make an effort, a sincere struggle, to hold attention in the body, in the present. And when the mind grabs hold of the attention and causes attention to drift, 
as quickly as possible to make effort to return to the present, to be grounded in the body and in the chamber. The greater our efforts in this respect to ground the attention and keep it in the present, the more power the chamber generates in terms of help. In this chamber, we work with attention. It is attention which is our lifeline, and it is attention and only attention which can lead to a new relationship with our suffering. So, in order to work with attention, I want to simply tell you that the work teaches us that there are two kinds of attention possible for a human being. The first kind of attention the work would call mechanical attention, unconscious attention. Every human is born with this kind of attention. It is a survival mechanism. It does not lead to transformation but it does lead to survival of the mechanism, the human form. For example, I drive from point A to point B. When I arrive at point B, I see that I have not killed myself or anyone else in the process, but I can't tell you a single thing that happened during that trip. My mind was elsewhere. And yet, that mechanical attention got me from point A to point B. But the work teaches us that a second attention is possible, a whole different level and kind of attention. One would call it a conscious attention. Only when this conscious attention is activated and begins to be fed is the practice of self-observation truly possible? Without the activation of the second attention, no self-observation is possible. What happens is the mind simply observes the mind, one eye observing another, one eye judging another, one eye trying to fix and change another, and it goes nowhere. So in a work chamber, our first effort is to ground the attention. And in order to do that, I'm going to do with you a simple sensing exercise in order to awaken and enliven this second attention, which will allow me not just to listen to what's being said tonight, but to hear. So I'm making a distinction between listening and hearing. Listening is a mechanical process. Words, sounds go in one ear and out the other, as the saying goes. But that good master Jesus had this curious practice when he gave his Dharma talks to whatever multitudes were assembled to hear him. At the end of his Dharma talks, he would say many, many times, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let those who have eyes to see, see. So clearly, he was invoking a process in which hearing involved much more than just listening. 
it involves some inner process. And so the work teaches us that that involves, first of all, placement of attention in the right place in the body. So if you wish to work in this way now, and it's not a command, of course, but if you wish to work, please stand wherever you are. And so we begin with both feet on the ground. And we immediately begin with an erect posture. Not a rigid posture. This is not the Marine Corps. But an erect posture. Relaxed with only that tension necessary to keep the spine straight. And the head and neck centered above the shoulders and aligned with the spine. Erect posture. An erect posture is a conscious posture. In our ordinary mechanical daily life, our postures are slumps of various kinds. We all have a small library uh, archive of postures, which we adopt habitually and mechanically. And with each of those postures, a certain thought processes accompany them. And certain moods or emotional processes accompany these postures. So I want to mention to you the law of posture. The law of posture is that posture evokes mood. And mood evokes attitude. In the mechanical sleeping world, which is our ordinary state in daily life, we're simply unaware of what's going on inside and often even outside. Or our attention is 100% fixated on what's going on inside and oblivious to the outside. Or 100% fixated on what's going on outside and oblivious to what's going on inside. And so in that state, whatever posture I'm in evokes a mood, and our attitude is completely enslaved and dependent upon the mood. Mood decides attitude. With erect posture, a conscious move, attention is awakened, second attention is awakened in me. And in that state, in that awake state, attitude is no longer dependent upon mood. Mood does not decide my attitude. Zen Buddhism calls erect posture the awakened state. It is a conscious move. In that state, my attitude may be, Lord have mercy, I wish to work. The mood may be, I want to do this or that. I don't want to do this or that, this and that. But my wish to work is greater than that mood and holds sway and gives me access to certain possibilities that are unavailable to me in the sleeping state. Once my posture is erect and I'm aware of the body, now I can move attention, conscious placement of attention out of the head brain and down lower below the neck in the body 
place attention at the solar plexus or the abdomen or the heart center, thereabouts. This move of attention is called will of attention. That is, as attention, I can move around in the body to then locate myself wherever I choose. In this case, attention is moved out of the head brain where it is encased, enslaved, frozen. And now the second attention is evoked. It is the second attention which exerts its will to move out of the head brain and down into the body. So if you wish, take your left hand and place it at the abdomen or at the solar plexus. And sense yourself from this new location. The sense of I located down low in the body, grounded. We are grounding the attention. In the head brain, the attention is not grounded. It is subject to flights of fancy in every direction and blown by every single breeze in every direction. Here, with erect posture and attention willed down lower in the body, the attention is grounded, and this brings the second attention into play. From this location down lower in the body, it's possible now to practice self-observation. From this location, I can begin to observe the workings, the movement of the mind and the emotions without being taken by them. That is, objectively, this is true self-observation. And what we're doing right now is called in the work self-remembering. I'm remembering my true self, not the false self, which is a product of the mind and the emotions, but this true self, which I am. And many traditions call this attention grounded in the body, I am at which point I can become conscious of the breath now. I'm sensing the breath. That beautiful angel, that ally, that tremendous help in order to awaken and to begin to have a new relationship with my suffering, a more objective relationship, a more impersonal relationship, a less identified relationship with my suffering. The breath is a present phenomenon only, so in order to be present where help is available for me when I suffer, I have to be in the present. Attention has to be a present phenomenon. Otherwise, no help can reach me. God itself cannot reach me when I am lost and taken in the mechanical world. The divine cannot reach to that low level. I am bereft and adrift. But lo, the moment attention is grounded in the body and the breath returns me to the present, now all the help of all the divine forces are available to assist me if I can remain open and receiving present. As attention, the second attention is an attention capable of receiving divine influence.
which the work calls conscience. I cannot receive the enormous divine help of conscience unless attention is grounded in the present and receptive, sensing the breath. Inhalation, exhalation, radiation of a finer energy on the exhalation, being present and grounded allows the body to extract from the air its finest elements, which some ancient schools have called prana. On the exhalation, this radiation of prana can be sensed by sensitive individuals as the cells receive this much finer and more enlivening food, the cells respond with a kind of vigor which can be sensed. And now staying with the breath and erect posture, I can sense the whole body. Bodily sensation, touch, taste, smell, hearing, seeing, the five senses, sensation. And I sense the room I'm in now as I'm standing here, working together, all of us working together, generating a force which helps me to stay present. I sense that the air conditioner is on in the room I'm in, that there are two windows in front of me. I feel the air moving. I feel the ceiling fan circulating the air. I'm aware of two lights being on in front of me, two pictures of my master and his master. But I'm not taken by them. Attention is 75% in the body, 25% out of the body, taking in its body surroundings. This is called divided attention. Second attention is capable of being in two places at once, inside and outside at the same time. And now I can relax the body using the breath. The body, you see, the body is an invaluable ally because it is a present phenomenon only as well. The body does not exist anywhere except in the present, not in the past, not in the future. Breath is a present phenomenon only. It doesn't exist in the past or the future. If I want to be where love exists, love is a present phenomenon only. If I wish to be real, if I wish for my life to be real, Mr. Gurdjieff said life is real only then when I am. Otherwise, life is not real. It's all imagination and identification, period. It is not real, and I am not real. I am only exists as a present phenomenon. So be seated. And thank you, those of you who are willing to work together with us, all of us working together. It creates a different force, a different feeling and sensation in this chamber. So attention is absolutely crucial in learning to use suffering. So the suffering does not use me up. So that suffering can become a food which allows the being, I am, attention to grow, expand, and evolve. So I'm reading a quote now from Mr. Gurdjieff. Quote, there is no attention in people, unquote. 
he's speaking of the second attention. He knows very well, as we do, that there is a mechanical attention in everyone. He's speaking of this second attention, which we are working with now, which sensing the body and the breath has helped me to restore. So begin again with this quote from Mr. Gurdjieff, quote, there is no attention in people. You must acquire this. Self-observation is only possible after acquiring attention, unquote. Mechanical attention will not do it. I must acquire this second attention, and I do it by remembering myself and grounding attention in breath and sensation in the body. In the school that I'm a part of, in which I owe so much to, we call this kaya sadhana. It is spiritual practice in the body. It is living life in the body. In the body, but not as the body. And then I quote from Madame de Saltzman, Mr. Gurdjieff's great student. Quote, you do not realize enough that your attention is your only chance. Without it, you can do nothing. Unquote. So we are working with second attention now. And we begin to engage this question of suffering. There are two kinds of suffering. There's mechanical suffering, which goes on constantly. And people have become so used to this mechanical suffering, they don't even know they're suffering anymore. And if you ask them, they would deny it. And there is conscious suffering. This work that some of us are engaged in, which we call the work, is self-remembering and self-observation. The work calls self-remembering conscious labor. It calls self-observation intentional suffering. So there is mechanical suffering in which all humanity is engaged in trying to escape it. And there's intentional suffering in which the work asks us to fully engage that suffering. To experience it, not to try to get rid of it, but to engage it. And so the text that I'm using tonight to engage this question with you, I use Buddha's Four Noble Truths. Yogi Ram Kumar, who is the lineage holder of this particular school that I'm a part of, was approached by a very young girl who was in a wheelchair and suffering terribly. And the question was, why? And Yogi Ram Kumar, I believe this is a direct quote, said, quote, if you are born, you suffer, unquote. Buddha's Four Noble Truths. One, there is suffering. Two, there is a cause of suffering. Three, there is an end to suffering. And of course, he's speaking of mechanical suffering in each instance. Four, there is a path to that end. So we begin at the beginning. There is suffering. And Yogi Ram Kumar, if you were born, you suffer. And so the first question I want to address with you is, why is that so? Why must there be suffering? And I'd like to hear from anyone who wants to jump into the deep end of the pool with me. I'm treading water here. 
Why must there be suffering in the human world? And when there is silence, don't forget yourself. Go back to the body. Restore second attention. I believe all because of the karma, what we had on our previous birth. Maybe we are carrying from the previous birth. That's what we are having a suffering here. Thank you very much, because this introduces a new concept, perhaps to some. Maybe all of us know about the law of karma. We speak of law here tonight, many different laws. I am a lover of the law. And I wish to be a law-abiding citizen of the universe. So karma says for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And we suffer because our actions have created the suffering that we experience now. Have I got that right, sir? Have I fairly stated what you said? Yes, that's correct. Thank you very much, sir. Yogi Ram Sarakumar. Yogi Ram Others. There is suffering. Why must there be suffering as humans? I think when we incarnate, then there is innate suffering in our separation or our belief of separation from the divine. And then it's our journey to realize that separation is not true. So it's part of our path to experience the suffering, and then experience the union. This is so beautiful what you've said. Surely, if I come from the divine into a human form, and I believe that I have been separated from my source, suffering is inevitable in that case. Does that do justice to what you've just said, ma'am? Yes. It's a wonderful thing you've said. So. Karma and separation from the divine lead to human suffering. I'd like to hear more. These are wonderful things you're saying. They help. I think as human beings, we're wired to strive against difficulties. So suffering in a way is an ally or can be an ally to awakening. That's a very interesting thing you've just said. I wonder if you could say more about that. You said suffering is an ally to awakening. Can you say more? If I look at myself, I fall asleep and I'm not motivated. I get lost in the dream and suffering is a motivator. It's like that burr under the saddle. It is a motivator to behave and learn to be different. Mr. E.J. Gold once said that no human comes to this work until their suffering becomes intolerable. Right. So I wonder if one could say then that if we're wired to use difficult situations in order to grow, that suffering can be a reminder, a valuable reminder of what my aims are and how I wish to be. Yeah. The work calls that a reminding factor, an inner reminding factor. We are forgetting machines. And we need, I need to be reminded 
that the work is my only hope and that conscience is my salvation. I need to be reminded because thoughts are so attractive to a man like me, and I'm easily taken by them. And I lose contact with my body and with the present, and I lose contact with the divine, with all help, and with love, which is a present phenomenon only. Love doesn't exist in the past. If I'm thinking about my beloved, I'm not loving. I have to be with, not think about. Thank you, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. These are excellent, very helpful. More, please. Why must there be suffering? We've only just scratched the surface, of course. There are no final answers and no wrong answers. Because we're connected into a nervous system. That's a very interesting statement. Can you say more? I wonder if you can do a little explanation of what you mean by that. Yes, I am connected to a central nervous system and... That central nervous system precedes pain in order to continue surviving. Yes, so I'm with you so far. So why must there be suffering? Should we make a distinction between pain and suffering? If you can do that, maybe it's helpful. Let's hear it. If we have bodies, we're going to experience pain. It's inevitable. There's very few people who can't feel pain, but that's the weird nervous system, and by and large, most people are going to experience pain. If you have a body with a functioning nervous system, it's going to do that because that's part of the body's survival mechanism. Part of the body survives is noticing sensations, especially pain, that's not useful for it continuing. We're on to a really interesting little path here. The mind, which is a generalization machine, makes a generalization about pain. It associates pain not only with physical pain. Can you say more about what the mind does with pain? Well, that's a good question. I would guess from self-observation that the mind very quickly makes up some story about why that pain is there, where it came from. Unless it's a type of acute pain before the mind realizes what happened, the body is in action if it's pain. But there's different levels of pain, maybe, and some pain is not as acute as that. And where's the line between pain and suffering? Maybe the line is that suffering becomes when I make up a story about the pain. Oh, that's very interesting. You said there's different kinds of pain, and so I want to suggest there's physical pain. There's emotional pain, there's intellectual pain, and maybe there's spiritual pain. And the mind makes no distinction between them. The mind generalizes that all of those are survival threats and wants to get away from them as quickly as possible. So the suffering that the mind perceives is imaginary. It's identification, and it reacts to all of those phenomenon, physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, the same. It sees a survival threat, and it wants to escape. 
And so where can it escape to? There's only one place the mind can go, and that is into imagination. And that leads to suffering of a profound level because I've removed myself from the source of love. I've removed myself from all the help the divine has to offer. I've removed myself from relationship. Thank you. Very good addition to Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. It made me think of when I was a young child born into a very abusive family and no one had to tell me that it shouldn't be this way, that I should be experiencing love and not abuse and not pain. It wasn't something that I was taught. It was something that's inherent when I arrived on this planet. There's this blueprint of divinity, that the other side, whatever you want to call it, where there's nothing but love. So when you come here and there's every other emotion possible, you're going to suffer because you're going to experience them. That's a strong example. I was also born into an abusive family. I was adopted into an abusive family, I should say. And I learned about suffering at a very early age. And my whole childhood was suffering. But I didn't know what to do with it. I had no wise counsel. So I escaped into fantasy, into imagination. As almost everyone does, they make a story and they identify with that story. I'm this kind of person. In my case, my story involves self-hatred. And that became my great source of suffering. Self-hatred, which was the core around which my false identity was wound, was in charge. And so the suffering of self-hatred was ongoing. And it was a bully. And so it attracted bullies, beginning with my father, of course. So there is suffering. In the way you're already saying this, I was going to say that I suffer because I think things should be different from how they actually are in a repetitive way. That's a wonderful addition to what's been said. Thank you. That is the desire to change what is leads to constant suffering because I don't stand in front of what is and know how to work with it. And the desire to change what is means that I never, ever accept what's right in front of me. I always hold out for something more, something different. And that's suffering of a very real kind all by itself. Thank you, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. The second noble truth, Buddha's second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering. There is a cause of suffering. All right, my question to you is, what is that cause? Hey, Red Hawk, before you move to the next question, I read something that Ram Das, Swami Ram Das had written that has really impacted me. And that's that suffering softens the heart of man. And something like that's the essential ingredient that's necessary in order to open to the divine, in order to realize oneself beyond the self-sense. Somehow, intellectually, that makes sense to me, but viscerally, 
that packs a punch. I think that I don't even know the ways that I'm defended. And when real suffering comes into my life, then I realize that I'm really not as vulnerable as I think. And that much more is possible in terms of being attuned to others and to the creation. Suffering softens the heart. Is that the quote? Have I got that right? Something like suffering softens the heart of man. Yeah. Can you speak from your own experience to that? Yeah. (laughs) In terms of loss, I feel kind of um, opened and vulnerable in a way that I haven't been and didn't even realize that I wasn't. Only when I can see how defended I am is there a possibility of a crack, a chink in that armor appearing. Is that your experience too? Yes, and I think I probably was seeing my defensiveness with mechanical attention prior to that. Yeah. Prior to experiencing some real loss, with the loss of my wife. Yeah. That brings in a really interesting point. Self-observation accompanied by feeling deepens the observation and brings into play the second attention in a very powerful way. Self-observation accompanied by feeling widens, deepens, expands one's attention. And we, or I, just mechanically want to get away from that kind of pain. But when there's no way out, (laughs) the only way is to accept it, really, for there to be any possibility at all. It's hard to say that as a gift, but it is. It's incomprehensible as a gift to the mind, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And this takes us to what someone just had said about the desire to change what is keeps me from feeling. But the work says to stand with the feeling. And if I try to avoid the feeling, the suffering becomes repetitive. To your first question, the way you phrased it, why must there be suffering? These toast, may the heat of suffering become the fire of love, I think addresses exactly what it is we're all speaking to. Say more about that quote, can you? It's a work wish, acknowledging that suffering must be, suffering is, and the possibility, opportunity, if we're able to access and remain seated in our second attention, that that suffering will become the fire of love, which is the opportunity and possibility of human awareness the function of suffering in our lives when properly married with attention does, through the law, as you might say, transmute into the experience of 
love, which is God, which is union, which penetrates the illusion of separation. Can you say what the marriage of suffering and attention is? How does that marriage occur? Through acceptance of what is in presence. We're divorced within ourselves through living in monkey mind, mechanical attention, so on. So the marriage is kind of a poetic way to just describe the alignment of centers, our accessing and living within, standing within attention is a kind of union. It's a hard one to describe. What's it a union between? Because there's no more two things. It's kind of like a dissolution of the two things. You commonly think of marriage as two separate things getting together, but it's a dissolution of separation. The work says that no transformation can happen without three forces. And you have suggested a third force. So there is suffering and there is attention. And you've already suggested that a third force can arise that unites those two, marries them. Can you say the quote again? May the heat of suffering become the fire of love. Between the heat of suffering and the attention which stays with that, a third force can arise, and speaking from my experiences, love arises. Or I would say the sacred heart of mercy arises. I would say that a merciful heart, a courageous heart, a grateful heart, arises when attention is stabilized to the point where it can stay with the suffering. Is that your experience as well, or have I gone someplace else? No, that's good. And that's why there must be suffering. Yeah, that's such a beautiful quote. Can you say where that quote came from? It was a quote Lee came up with as a toast to something. In our school, we had a meeting space called the Tavern. Every night, at the end of the day, people would gather to remember the mood of love, to remember God. Old Sufi tradition. Indeed, right. In a Kanaka, I believe, is the name of the space. But during celebrations or times when many people would gather and couldn't fit into the small space, people would get invitations to attend with that saying, may the heat of suffering become the fire of love. I want to talk about the heat of suffering from my own experience. When I have the strength and the courage and the gratitude and the mercy of the heart in order to stand with my suffering, what is created in me is friction between a yes and a no. No, I don't want this suffering. Yes, I want to stand in front of the suffering. And between the yes and the no is this second attention. This friction in mechanical law, friction produces heat. In physics, when two substances are placed into a test tube, they cannot join or be united until placed over a fire. That heat from the fire allows those two substances to unite. 
or Mary. And that friction, if I'm willing to endure and trust God and trust the work and trust attention and trust the heart, the heart catches fire as the sacred heart of mercy, as compassion. I want to read a quote from Eckhart Tolle. He's an interesting fellow. I like him. This is a quote. All the misery on the planet arises due to a personalized sense of me or us. That covers up the essence of who you are. When you are unaware of that inner essence, in the end, you always create misery. It's as simple as that. When you don't know who you are, you create a mind-made self as a substitute for your beautiful divine being and cling to that fearful and needy self, protecting and enhancing that false sense of self then becomes your primary motivating force, end quote. And that clinging to that false self is called in the work identification. And I want to suggest to you, but you mustn't believe me, please do not trust the speaker. That only creates more suffering because we are suggestible beings in our mechanical minds. We'll believe any damn thing we're told. We'll believe the election was stolen. We'll believe this, that, and the other thing. We'll follow any mind-made God. But I want to suggest to you from my own experience that all of human suffering, all the problems which humanity faces and each individual is faced with are the result of identification. That this false self that Eckhart Tolle alludes to is 100% identification, this me. Identification immediately followed by its handmaiden, which is imagination. So I want to read a quote from my own teacher, Mr. Lee, which is entitled The Radical Confrontation. This is from a book called Just This 365, available from Home Press, H-O-H-M-Press.com. Quote, although a lot is happening in our lives, it begins to dawn on us that we're not making the breakthrough. What gives? What's the problem? Some ask. There's only ever one problem. An unwillingness to radically confront the need to cease all identification. Unquote. The third noble truth. There is an end to suffering. Okay, what is it? What is that end? What ends mechanical suffering? I guess I have a question on whether or not the suffering itself is necessarily looked upon so negatively, meaning is it always something to want to have to end? as opposed to seeing the aliveness of the suffering? Does that make sense? Yes. So what's been suggested so far is that when suffering occurs, I do not retreat. 
I stay grounded in the body, attention in the body, observing the suffering, staying with the suffering, and not retreating from it. Buddha says there is an end to suffering. And I'm wondering what's meant by that. Maybe how I have always understood it for myself is maybe I won't get there in this lifetime. And in some ways, I feel there's a lot of aliveness within the suffering. Um, Yes. So in some ways, to maybe even have that aspiration of having the end of suffering might be a little bit too much to attain. Maybe in this go around, that makes sense. And I, I feel that there's sometimes a real aliveness in the suffering. What you're suggesting now is very important. And so I I want to go into it with you a little. May I do that? Please. All right. Here's my experience with mechanical suffering, which is constantly repeating. Same suffering over and over. Do you have that experience? Well, sure. Sure. Yeah. So there are memories which come up. They've been coming up all of my life. With those memories is accompanied of the emotion of suffering. And it never ends. It just goes on and on. And so it's dead. There's no life in it. It's dead. It's repetitious. But, however, and when I stay with it and allow myself to feel it and accept it and embrace it, I come alive. A life force which is held in it is released when I can embrace it and allow it and accept it. It seems to me that's what you're suggesting with that beautiful thing you've just said. Have I got it right or have I missed the mark? No, you've got it right. Yes, you've hit it right on the nose. It seems a little strange to say. I'm very grateful for you raising that. That's a really a lively question. (laughs) Thank you so much. So the question or the statement there is an end to suffering the weird word that came to my head was, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean there's a permanent end to suffering because <laughs> as I've gotten deeper into spiritual practice, there has been an end to suffering in a lot of ways. It does come back here and there, but the things that just haunted me for years and years, I've finally reached that place. And there's situations now that I'm dealing with that everyone around me is suffering and I'm equanimous. I have a good friend in her 30s who's dying of stage four cancer and everybody's losing their minds and I'm there okay because I know we're eternal. I'm with it and I want to be totally present to her suffering, period. Without any personal history, without any me, I want to be with her. Yeah. And there's a situation in my life where there's somebody that I love very much and it may not ever come to pass that that person is in my life the way I wish, but I can love them unconditionally with positive regard and be okay with that. So you've raised a very interesting point and a valuable point. That is, I don't want to speak for Buddha, <laughs> but I wonder if he means an end to mechanical suffering. Is that what you're suggesting? Just that I've had moments without suffering, but I don't know that in this life it's going to be permanent. 
I'm a lover of Zen. And in my years of practice, no amount of being absorbed in expansive states or non-dual non-separation has taken away the suffering. Me too. Looking at these wonderful pictures of Mr. Lee and Yogi Ramsarak Kumar, I perceive that their suffering didn't end either. But my hunch is their own suffering shifted to we being what their suffering was. Can we call it cosmic suffering? Yes, cosmic, but also very personal in their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. You've raised a really, really important point. I want to read this quote from Stephen Levine from his book, Who Dies? And thank you so much for what you've just said. It's so useful. Here's the quote. Quote, Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. The secret, offer your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering into joy, unquote. Sir, I wonder if that strikes at the heart of what you've just offered. There's freedom in the suffering. The suffering is liberated while still remaining in the suffering. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar. It sounds to me like what the distinction is, it's conscious suffering. Exactly. When there is a sacrifice that is made, which is what Stephen Levine talks about, that we're each given the gift and the choice to sacrifice willingly that suffering creates this friction, this heat, and allows it to alchemically change to joy, the possibility of joy. So I think there is universal suffering, and maybe that's what Lee and the yogi shoulder. And I think there is individually a sacrifice of identification, imagination, all of those various things we've been talking about and suffering to create conscious suffering. I'm going to use the distinction between sacrifice and surrender. And this is the fourth noble truth. There's a path to the end of mechanical suffering in which I surrender to the sacred heart of mercy. And I allow the sacred heart of mercy to take in everything, suffering and joy. And I do not seek one and avoid the other as that sacred heart of mercy, which takes in the suffering of the world and of God. My portion of that, 
is my responsibility. And I take it graciously and gratefully. I'm going to quote Amazing Grace now. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Second verse. Must Jesus bear this cross alone while all the rest go free? There is a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. And I quote Mr. Ospensky, P.D. Ospensky, quote, The only thing we have to offer is our suffering, unquote. So the surrender of my personal suffering is a very mature practice, and it's not once and done. It's every time my personal suffering arises, I surrender it to the Sacred Heart of Mercy, to Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, to Buddha, to God. And I want to offer this quote from Mr. E.J. Gold, quote, conscience depends upon an understanding of objective suffering, unquote. Objective suffering I take to mean suffering without personal identification, without any personal history. Impersonal suffering is objective. I don't identify with it. It allows conscience to develop in me. And my experience is that conscience is the only path that leads to an end of mechanical suffering. Conscience is the only hope of mankind. What you're talking about now also is the function that a lot of people don't realize that human beings have their responsibility to feed the divine, to support the divine. It's kind of a, an abstract or far out there concept, but I think that when there is surrender, when there is presence, when there is consciousness, that actually supports and feeds the creation. It's called the law of reciprocal maintenance. Here's my experience. Every time attention is embodied in breath and sensation, God is fed and God feeds me. I want to close by reading a poem from a fellow named Red Hawk. It's called Suffering is Overrated. I should know. I've spent my life heavily invested in it. And like all bad investments, it has not yielded the grand profit, the accumulation of wealth and privilege, the freedom from want and security in old age. Now my suffering calls me collect from a hovel in some drug-infested city under siege by enemy forces and enduring heavy aerial bombardment with enormous collateral damage, and it begs me for a moment of my time Please pick up. It's me. It says, but I am not at home. I have sold all my belongings, unhooked the cable and the internet, and am out walking with no dog. If perchance you should meet my suffering, 
begging legless on a city street, unshaven and red-eyed with sorrow, homeless and starving with a sign that says, intellectual will think for food, give him a penny for his thoughts. God bless you all. I'm very grateful for the help you've offered, for inviting me to speak, and for making the effort to come tonight. God bless you with all my heart. I love you and I thank you. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar.